This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, this chapter contains what is likely the most famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, there's been more written about this chapter, uh, about this parable, than any, than any of the other parables that Jesus told. And there's probably been more sermons preached about it and more Sunday school classes devoted to it uh, than any other parable that Jesus told. And so that it becomes one of the difficulties in working through a book is eventually you land on the passages that are cherry-picked all the time. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to just frame out the parable of the prodigal son in terms of its location in the chapter. I'm not going to be uh, sort of taking three or four weeks, this is often done, you, know, you take three or four weeks and work through you know, the parable of the prodigal son and you spend one week looking at the younger brother and the next week looking at the older brother and all the rest. So I'm just going to try to take it in one shot, including the two parables that come before it. Do not let familiarity with this section dull you to it. Uh, you know how it ends, but there's such a rich layering of detail and development as you go through it. So Pay attention to it, uh, pretend you're hearing it for the first time, maybe. Look at all the rich textual details. And also, just from a literary level, be amazed. I mean, one of the incredible things about the teaching of Jesus is in such a short word count, he gives us such treasures of teaching and instruction that people have fed their minds and hearts and souls on for thousands of years. And it's just here, in just this little section. I mean, today, we with, with our longer books and even our short stories, I mean, how many short stories are just that number of paragraphs, that number of sentences? Uh, the teaching of Jesus is incredible. So Luke chapter 15, uh, beginning at verse 1, uh, this is the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, before we uh, unpack this this passage together, uh, we're going to pray, and I'm just going to ask that take a moment. I mean, it's it's a Thanksgiving weekend, and that means that uh, we're supposed to be thankful, and we really shouldn't need a, a calendar reminder of that. Christians should be thankful all the time. We should be a people characterized by rejoicing and thanksgiving, because everything we have is a gift of the grace of God. And so we should be a thankful people. Uh, we should count our blessings. You know, we should count our many blessings, name them one by one. You know, count your many blessings, see what God has done. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, we're supposed to be thankful to God for all of his blessings. Uh, yesterday we had great reason to be thankful to God uh, with the marriage of Luke and Shona. And so we want to remember them in prayer and ask the Lord to continue to bless them and strengthen them. Uh, this afternoon, actually, I have uh, another wedding uh, that I have to officiate uh, in Ingersoll, uh, place that I've never been to. Uh, but there's this uh, apparently there's this nice place, Elmhurst Resort and uh, or hotel or something, and this couple's getting married there. And it's might be slightly difficult. To, they were supposed to be married by Steve Baxter, uh, who's a pastor at Grandview, who passed away uh, just suddenly a few weeks ago. And so the church sent out an email and said, listen, we, we have this couple. Is there anyone who 
will be willing to come down and marry them. So I said, you know what, we're not doing anything on the Sunday afternoon of the Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, we're going to be leaving pretty quick after the service to get down there and, and marry that couple. Uh, but this is another another reason to, to be thankful to God. The gift of relationships, the gift of love, you know, marriage, family, friends, church family. I mean, it's just so much to be thankful for. So I'm going to ask, just take a moment uh, individually, bow before the Lord, bow before your your Father, thank Him, be thankful, and then in a moment I'll lead us in prayer. Our Father, you live in the highest heaven, and even the highest heaven cannot contain you. You are transcendent and immense, but you are also with us. You dwell with those who are lowly and humble and contrite. And Lord, I just pray that this morning you will enable us in a fresh way to appreciate your grace and your favor and your love. Help us to appreciate what we deserve as sinners— And then against the backdrop of what we deserve, help us to just marvel that you bless us again and again and again with such bounty in such rich ways. Father, we are mindful of of many of our group here who are away this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, visiting family and other places. And Lord, we just pray that you will have your hand upon them, that you will bless them. Uh, cause them to strengthen relationships and to strengthen their relationship primarily with you. Wherever your people are today, I pray that your spirit will work in their hearts to make them truly grateful to you for all of your gifts of grace, for all the things that we have to be thankful for. Lord, we join our hearts and minds now to pray a special blessing of your grace and favor and love and mercy and presence for Luke and Shona. Uh, We just ask that you will truly unite them together, uh, that they will uh, know love in every way, and that uh, their relationship uh, will be a profound and a beautiful witness for the love that your son has for the church. Uh, We pray, Lord, that uh, they will have a tremendous impact uh, on all who know them uh, for your glory. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we ask that you will open it to us. Uh, It is a familiar section to us, and so we pray uh, that your spirit will open the eyes of our heart. Help us to see something. Help us to maybe not see something new, but to see deeper into the profundity of what you have revealed. Uh, Be with us, we pray. Strengthen our hearts. Help us to respond accordingly and to rejoice, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, as I mentioned, maybe more more work has been done on this parable than on any of the other parables of Jesus, and that's in terms of studies and teaching. It's also true in terms of aesthetics. And there's all kinds of art 
depictions of this narrative, different uh, different stages in it. And so we come to this and we say, you know, I've I've heard this, and you've undoubtedly heard many a message on the parable of the prodigal son. And even when the message isn't directly on the parable, very often that the parable gets brought in as an illustration. You know, so in terms of evangelistic preaching, it's very common, even if the text is something else, you know, to reference the prodigal son. No matter what you've done, no matter how far away you've gone, no matter how long you've been out there, you know, the father is always ready to receive you. And certainly that's not illegitimate. I mean, that's not an illegitimate use uh, of the passage. But because that's part of our evangelical reality, uh, it just becomes almost like a burned over passage. You know, we, we just just move through it so quickly because we've gone over it so many times before. We almost can't imagine there being new growth there. You know, and so we have to really ask God to help us when we come to a context like this. Usually the accent is drawn on repentance and forgiveness and salvation. And that's, again, not illegitimate. It's not. But I think one of the things that's going on here is that Jesus is giving us not just one big point. He's actually giving it, it's, it's very multifaceted. And that's why some of these studies that have been done, where they sort of work through the, you know, the spiritual psychology of the younger brother and the spiritual psychology of the older brother and the spiritual psychology even of the father, and they can be very useful. Uh, one very helpful, very readable book, uh, as all of his stuff really is, uh, is The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And so if you're interested in sort of working through this text in a little bit more detail in terms of understanding what does it mean to be an elder brother? How, what would be the characteristic points that would identify what it's like to be the elder brother? Uh, what, what does it actually look like? How does being a younger brother manifest itself in life? Uh, that book by Tim Keller, The Prodigal God, very readable, not too long, uh, very profound. It's a great resource to use uh, in terms of those sorts of studies. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to just connect the wider dots and put together the structure of uh, all three parables. Because I do think that they're all working uh, to bang home the exact same point. The context is given to you in the first two verses. There are tax collectors and sinners who are gathering around to hear Jesus. And we've seen this before in the Gospels. Jesus is always collecting around himself you know, a group of outcasts and a group of people who the religious group in society wants nothing to do with. And they're always around Jesus. And Jesus is always being criticized for this. One of the great complaints directed towards Jesus is he spends his time with the wrong people. He spends his time with unclean people. He spends his time with sinners. And Jesus has to say again and again and again and again, well, of course I do. You know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I mean, who do you want me to spend my time with? I, I have come to seek and save the lost. In order to seek and save the lost, I have to seek the lost. You know, that's who they are. And so you should be rejoicing that I've come to seek and save the lost. Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, they're the ones who need grace. Unfortunately, you can't see that you're part of the lost too. You should rejoice I've come to seek the lost because that's the only way you yourself can be saved. None of us have it all together. None of us are righteous enough to make ourselves right with God. 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering and complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He has fellowship with them. He shares a table with them. He's hospitable with them. He invites, he accepts their invitations for a meal. He's completely sending the wrong message about what it means to be righteous in our society. So this is the context. And one of the things that you're going to find in the parables that Jesus tells is this. Jesus not only welcomes sinners. Jesus not only eats with sinners. Jesus rejoices to eat with sinners. And that's not the same thing at all. And this is one of the beautiful things about the character of Jesus Christ. He doesn't come to earth and say, you know what? I'm on this salvific mission. I'm here to save. I guess I may as well sort of just grit my teeth and get on with it and spend this time with these people, you know, who I don't like, and I'm, but I'm going to save them because to the glory of God, I'm just going to do it, but I'm not going to like it. No, he, he comes and he delights in his saving work. He rejoices in being the shepherd who finds the lost sheep. He he delights, nothing delights him more than seeing the lost come to saving faith. It's the heartbeat of Jesus because he is the son who perfectly represents the father. In other words, theologians have often noted that if you really want to understand God the father, you need to see how the attitudes of God the Father are expressed through the one who is exactly his image. Uh, the perfect image bearer of God the Father is the Son, the second person in the Trinity. And when he is incarnate, the attitudes, the dispositions that we see in the Son perfectly, faithfully, with 100% accuracy reflect the attitude and the heart of the Father. So what you're seeing when Jesus welcomes sinners and rejoices to have fellowship with sinners, you're seeing his saving heartbeat, which is perfectly in line with the saving mission of God. In other words, that's why there's a saving mission in the first place. It's because God so loved the world that he sent his son. See, love precedes the saving mission. Jesus doesn't begin to love us when we start cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves lovable. You know, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And so the love precedes the salvific plan. The love is what sends Jesus. The love is what causes Jesus to voluntarily agree to the Father's plan to come to earth to receive sinners, to give them a chance through faith at eternal life by his death on the cross, paying the penalty for their sin, dying in their place so that they themselves can be can receive his perfect spotless righteousness. And Jesus loves it. He loves being a savior. It's often been noted by those who go a little bit deeper into the structure of the text that, yes, there's a lot to be said about repentance and, and all of the rest. Sin, and no matter what you've done, you can always come back. That's all, that's all very true. But the parable structure, these three parables, are directed towards the attitude of the Pharisees. So this is not in the first instance designed for Jesus evangelistically to say, let me tell you about the type of people who can repent. He tells these parables because 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering and complaining. So that means, as many people have noted, that the punch of it is really directed towards the elder brother. The younger brother, in a sense, is almost like a foil. The younger brother is positioned to bring out the attitude of the elder brother, which was then condemned as being out of sync with the attitude of, of the father. And so with the context and with the Pharisees muttering, they're almost like Jesus saying, okay, listen, you are muttering because I'm receiving the younger brother types. But let me tell you what God thinks about this. Let me tell you a parable which is going to show what your attitude is like compared to the attitude of God the Father. So the younger brother isn't really the point. The younger brother's experience is necessary for Jesus to be able to correct the sinful, self-righteous, hard-heartedness of the elder brother types that set up the context in verse 2. So then Jesus tells them this parable. The first one. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And the answer to that is, of course he doesn't. Shepherds do not leave 99% of their flock in the open country all alone to go off trying to find one lost sheep. It's lost because he doesn't know where it is. Now, I've looked for different things in my life. I've spent enough time at camps where, you know, there's a kid who goes running off. And you don't know where he is. Now, he might be north, might be south, might be west, might be east. You have no idea. So you start going off in one direction, and while you're headed off in one direction, you know, you usually get everyone to start fanning out. Why? Because you don't know where he is. And you can go in one direction. You can be going in exactly the opposite direction that the kid's going in. Or you can start heading out to where they are, and unbeknownst to you, they're already on the move. So you can get to where they were 15 minutes earlier, and then turn left where they turned right. So of course you don't leave 99 sheep in the open country to go and look for one. You don't know where it is. It's not worth the risk. It's actually a very foolish thing to do. So no, that's exactly what you don't do. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Is that what he does? When he finds this one lost sheep, he's so overjoyed that he picks it up, throws it on his shoulders, and carries it all the way home. Is that what this shepherd does? Then he calls his friends and neighbors together. Really? When's the last time that happened? You know, this guy leaves 99% of his sheep to go find one. He's no idea where it is. He finds it. He's so overjoyed. He puts it on his own shoulders, carries it all the way home, and then sort of gets on Facebook and updates his, his status. Having a party, found my lost sheep. Like, no one does that. This is crazy. And he calls them together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people, people like you, who see no need of repentance, who do not need to repent. You're already fine. You, you, you don't need to be one of the sinners. You're upset that I'm welcoming sinners. You're, you don't need to repent. But there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one lost sinner than the 99 who are just fine on their own. See, this is not a parable that is actually true to real life detail. 
This is not how we work. This is not how a shepherd works, if a shepherd's going to be successful at all. A shepherd goes bombing off trying to find one lost sheep, and he, by the time he finds it, he gets back, all of his other sheep are dead, you know, or, or dispersed. There's a whole lot of looking for, now there's 99 lost sheep, right? And so this is not at all what people are going to do. They're not going to throw a party because they found one lost sheep. So what you're being shown here is that there is an extravagance in the love and saving mission of Jesus Christ. This is this is not normal business. This is not the way people do things because God is not like us. God has a great heart. God loves the lost. He has sent his son to find those lost sheep. And the beautiful expression here is when he finds it. It's the language of divine necessity. He will find his lost sheep. He will seek and save the lost. That's what the Son of Man has come to do. He will be successful. And in heaven, whenever there is a sheep that is found, whenever there is salvation, the entire court of heaven rejoices. So index your heart against that, Jesus says. You've got this all figured out. You've got this all quantified. You've figured out exactly how religion is supposed to work. But let me tell you about the way it works in heaven. Let me tell you about the joy and celebration in glory. Now, he goes on. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins, probably worth about a day's wages, and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Yes, probably she does. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Does she really do that? Does she call them up? And, and really, I think the context here is, is, is it clarified a little bit in the next parable too. The rejoice and all this, it's like they throw a party. She's going to throw a party for her neighbors because she has found her lost coin. Now that probably means, in the context, there's a very, very good chance that she's spending more money on the party than the value of the coin that she found. I mean, estimates vary, but in, in the ancient world, uh, in this time, probably food costs alone ran over between somewhere between 50 and 70% of a day's wages. You think your grocery bill is expensive. And so that's why working was so essential in, in the ancient world. You got sick, and one of the, in the Old Testament laws, you had to pay your workers every single day. Because if they didn't get paid that day, there's a good chance they weren't going to eat. No welfare, no food stamps, no savings. And so you worked to eat. That was what you did. And so her, she finds this one coin. It is a big deal. But then she calls everyone together to rejoice, to have a party. And you're going, that doesn't make sense. The economics don't line up. And that's the point. It doesn't make sense. Why would God be so extravagant? Why would his grace be so super abounding? Why would he bless us so much? That's just the kind of God that he is. That's his heartbeat. There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, people have noticed the trajectory of this. I'm not sure it's significant, actually. They say, you know, the, the sheep, it's one out of a hundred, and the coins, it's one out of ten, and it's, then it's one out of two sons. I mean, that's true, mathematically. I, I don't know how significant it is. Uh, you would actually start to run into significant problems with the detailing of the parable if you kept it at 100 when you got to the sons. You know, the prodigal son, and there's a hundred boys, and you're going, well, that's kind of a messed up family to begin with. Uh, you know, so I'm not sure that that's actually significant. Uh, but the point is running the same way. So in verse 6, you have, 
She goes home and calls, or he goes home and calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Then verse 9, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. But then look down at verse 32. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The sheep is lost. We have to rejoice. It was lost and it's found. I have found my lost sheep. I have found my lost coin. My son was lost and is found. So you have the same punchline in every one of these three parables. And the dominant motif that runs through it all is rejoicing and joy and celebrating. So look at verse 5. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders. Verse 6. He calls his neighbors and says, rejoice with me. Verse 7. In the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven. Verse 9. She calls her friends and says, rejoice with me. Verse 10, in the same way there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Then you skip down to verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Verse 24, at the end. So they began to celebrate. Verse 25, he heard music and dancing. Did Jesus, did Jesus say that? One of, one of the biblically endorsed statements from the mouth of the incarnate Son of God is that sometimes there are situations that call for music and dancing when you're celebrating. That's what it says. They didn't make that up. And, and there actually, there are no textual variants. That's it. There are no translation difficulties. That's what the word means. So, yeah, so anyway, uh, I don't know why. I'm just mentioning that and moving on. <laughs> Verse 29 says, but he answered his father, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now notice, the older brother feels that a celebration, like the father owes him one. He wants to celebrate in his own particular way, but not in the way of the father. And then verse 32, we had to celebrate and be glad. You see, the, the pulse of this whole section is rejoicing, being filled with joy, celebrating, music, dancing, feasting, being glad. And actually, the language that runs through it is, is, a, is the language that Luke uses of divine necessity. We had to celebrate and be glad is the same word that Luke will use for whenever Jesus has to do something in terms of redemptive history. We have to do it. There's no other choice. There's no other option. We had to celebrate. We had to be glad. You, you can't opt out of this if your heartbeat is the same heartbeat of the, as the Father. There is no choice. There is no plan B. There's only rejoicing and celebrating when the lost are found. I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, Toronto Blue Jays are in the postseason. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, come on. <laughs> what, what is that? Let me just ask it again. It's not rhetorical. Did did you know that? 
Yes, yes. How many of you are excited about that? How many of you, how many of you saw the wild card game, or at least the highlights? So, the 11th inning. I don't know very much about baseball, but usually the games end in the ninth. So this is like, exciting. The 11th inning. Tie game. Two men on base. Edwin Encarnacion comes up to the plate. And what does he do? Walk off, home run, wins the wild card game, and moving on to the next round of the playoffs. And I predicted, as soon as I saw that ball, the next morning, like, that's crazy to stay up and watch that game. Like, shame on you if you did. But, you know, so the next morning I watched the highlights in three minutes on TSN. Fantastic. Uh, and, uh, and you see that, that home run. And I, as soon as it went off, I just, I could tell by the body language. I said, you know what? They're so excited. They're going to win the next game 10-1 and the game after that 5-3. I called it. It was perfect. I'll, I'm not predicting this afternoon or this evening's game. I'll tell you next week what I said it was going to be. Uh, and you know what you didn't need? What you didn't need when that ball went off the bat in the Rogers Center, or for anyone else who's a Jays fan watching, you didn't need someone to say, my, look at the trajectory of that ball. It landed in the seats. Okay, guys, um, on the count of three, we're going to start being happy, and we're going to celebrate. That's what we're going to do. So one, two, three, we have to be glad. Right? Like, you, you don't need to do that. Why? Because we rejoice about things we care about. And so what you're being told here is that you have to figure out, well, I, you know, I'm not really in line with this, but I guess I have to pretend I'm happy. It's such a part of who you've been transformed into that it is natural for you to rejoice and celebrate and be glad because your heartbeat in God's grace is aligned with the Father's and the Father rejoices and is glad when the lost are found. So, so do you. Because you're being fitted into the image of Jesus Christ. You're being made ready for that heavenly court. And already your desire is lining up with the desire of the Father. So in the same way, you don't need to tell Blue Jays fans, rejoice when they win the big game. You don't need to tell Christians, you shouldn't have to, to say your priorities should be so aligned with God the Father that you cannot help but rejoice when the lost come to saving faith. That is exactly the opposite of the attitude being demonstrated by the Pharisees. That's why this whole structure of Luke 15 is designed to show you your response to the salvation of sinners will show if you are in a right relationship with God the Father. So be very, very careful. Check your heart. What excites you? What causes you to rejoice? What really is sort of the DNA of your soul when it comes to rejoicing. Now you know the details. That's one of the reasons I, I can, I don't need to work through it sort of exhaustively. But basically the younger brother, uh, culturally says to his father, you know what? I, I really, I really just wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. You, you cease to exist for me. I care about the estate. I don't care about you. There's nothing could be more dishonoring in this culture than this. And then he takes the money and, and frankly, uh, goes off and today we'd probably say, you know, the, the closest equivalent would be, so he gets all of this, this money and runs off to Vegas, right? He just totally wastes it. And you can imagine, because some people want to say sort of later on, well, it doesn't, Texas doesn't say that he was sleeping with prostitutes, you know, but that's what the elder, that's in the heart of the elder brother. And well, maybe, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility to be told 
So there's this kid who gets all of his money and runs down to Vegas and blows it all in wild living. What do you think he's doing? And so he goes off. It is a complete dissipation. This is a flood of depravity. Ruins his life and ends up in the detail here is very important. He ends up feeding pigs, which for a Jew would have always rendered him unclean. Not only is he feeding pigs, that is not only has he hit rock bottom, but he gets to a point where he's so destitute that all he wants to do is eat pig food. Now, for anyone that Jesus is listening to, and for the Pharisees who pride themselves on their righteousness and their cleanliness, this is the most disgusting picture imaginable. But he comes to his senses. And that's one of the things that, a great little phrase that Jesus uses here. In other words, he wakes up to reality. And that's what repentance is, actually. Repentance is simply waking up to reality. Repentance is realizing who I am and who God is requires me to change course and come to God humbly and with contrition and with acknowledgement of my sin and with a genuine feeling of guilt and remorse, recognizing that I deserve wrath and judgment and pleading for mercy and grace because of what Christ has done for me. So he comes to his senses. He realizes that his father's servants are better off than he is. So he says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say, you know, I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. I've sinned against heaven and against you. And that's also very important. It's not just I've, I've sinned against you. I've broken our sort of uh, horizontal relationship. It's also I've, I've sinned vertically. I've broken my relationship with my heavenly father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you please hire me as a slave in the house? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him. And often at this point, we're told that this is very unusual. Patriarchs in their homes at this time in history don't run. And that's true in Middle Eastern context, but doesn't seem to actually be the case uh, in terms of Israel. So that's not a detail which is supposed to show that he becomes undignified to reach his son. It's just showing the driving compassion of his heart. Is He's not waiting. He sees his son. He's not waiting for his son to get here. He, he's going out. He's going out to get him, to meet him. And before a word is said, he throws his arms around him and kisses him. Because his heart is to receive and welcome the lost. His heart is to receive and welcome the sinners, to eat with tax collectors and sinners, to bring them in, to invite them in, to love them. And the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And some commentators have mentioned rightly, that is the only thing the older brother agrees with in this parable. You aren't worthy to be called his son. That's right, I am. Nothing truer has ever been said. But the father says, bring the best robe and put it on and bring a ring on his, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. These are all marks of sonship in the home. The, the robe that has the, the train of the robe, the hem of the robe showing belonging and, and sort of power and even prestige in the home. The sandals, the ring, probably the signet ring, the authorization. I mean, today you almost say it's like the you know the son shows up and even already having given you know half of the estate already. It's like he says, okay, um, well you're back in the will. Here's the credit card. Here's the keys to the car. G- go out and buy yourself some new clothes. 
Go out and take care of yourself. Whatever you need. You know, here it is. No, no questions asked. Just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Full reinstatement. Let's have a feast and celebrate. No lecture. You were dead. Now you're alive. You were lost. Now you are found. So they began to celebrate. And then the older brother here demonstrates that he's always been just as distant from the father as the younger brother, even though he was still living under the same roof. So he comes out, and instead of honoring his father by joining in with what the father has done, he resists his father and opposes his father. In other words, he is just as disrespectful of his father as that younger brother was when the younger brother went taking off. And so what the father does is the father goes out. And this is where that textual detail actually lines up with the shepherd and the woman. They go out to look. The shepherd leaves and goes out to find the sheep. The woman searches diligently through the home. It's not the younger brother who comes to the father, except the father isn't searching. It's the elder brother who the parable is directed towards. And yes, the father runs out to meet his son, the younger son. But here, the elder brother has no desire to come in. And so the father goes out. He leaves the celebration. He leaves his guests. He leaves his son who's just come home. And he goes out. He's entreating. And the word is, the text says, he pleaded with the older brother, come in. And the older brother says, listen, I've been slaving away for you. And that's uh, that's very important language. I've been slaving away for you. I never disobeyed you. God, what more do you want from me? I've been faithful. I've been righteous. I've, I've gone to church. I've given my money. I've done it. What else do you want? Try to keep all of your rules. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, hear that. Father, I don't... I haven't been looking to celebrate with you. I've been looking to celebrate with my friends. You never even, you never even paid for a party with my, with me, just me and my friends. But here it's the father who's celebrating, rejoicing with the family. When this son of yours, and the father will correct him in the last verse, he says, this son of yours, and, and the father reminds him, this brother of yours, in verse 32. He squandered all your property with prostitutes. He comes home and you kill the fattened calf. That is, you kill the special calf that's reserved for the great feast, for the most special occasion. In other words, you are honoring him as if this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. And the father says, son, don't you understand? This is the greatest thing that can happen. Don't you see that? This is the greatest thing that could happen. The lost has been found. The dead are alive. This is it. It doesn't get better than this. There isn't going to be a more special occasion. It's now. Now is the time to rejoice. Now is the time to celebrate. Nothing makes me happier than this. And we don't know what the elder brother did. See, the, it still hangs there. Come in. The father is inviting, he's throwing a party for the sinners who have repented. And at the same time, he's, whole, he's coming out to invite the elder brother in. 
Both sons are invited to the celebration. But they need to turn away from their sinful attitudes and align themselves with the Father heart of God. But everyone's welcome. Everyone is invited. And this is just like in chapter 14, verse 23. Remember when you have the parable of the great banquet and, and the people are resisting. They don't want to come in. And so the father who's throwing the banquet says to his servant, go out, go out into the country lanes, go outside of town, find them and compel them to come in. We go out, we bring them in. That's exactly what he is doing here with these two sons. He is going out to them, pleading with them, come in and rejoice. We have a God who rejoices. We serve a God who delights to save. And the whole court of heaven rejoices when sinners are saved. They celebrate that Jesus is a successful Savior. And so we pray, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how is it done in heaven? It's done with rejoicing. It's done with joy. It's done with celebration. And so that should characterize us too. We should be people, we should be a church that is characterized by rejoicing and celebrating over the blessings, particularly in redemption and salvation, that are given to us by God. We have a God who rejoices, and we are to be a people who join in with him in that celebration. If you are a believer, that is, if, if you are someone who has turned away from your sin and, and trusted in Jesus Christ and you know, been saved by his blood and righteousness, then on this Thanksgiving weekend, even though it's just really one day out of all the days you should be thankful, you should be filled with thanksgiving today. You should be filled with rejoicing today that you have been saved by the shepherd who leaves it all to come and to seek and save you out. Be a rejoicing person and be ready and be expecting and be praying, Lord, there are still lost sheep. There are still lost coins. There are still lost brothers. There are still lost sons. There are still lost daughters. There are still lost spouses. There's a whole world of people who yet have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to go and to reach them with the saving message of Jesus Christ. And fill this place up with people who have come to know you through him. Uh, what, a, what a great thing it would be if, if week by week by week we were just rejoicing in seeing the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Let's work to that end. Let's preach and teach and evangelize to that end. Uh, to seek and save the lost. And to rejoice with our God. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in a closing song at it is a song, presumably, but it's also an opportunity to celebrate and to rejoice and to praise the Lord.